I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome. Hello. To the official podcast of The Gibson Review. In each episode, we express our joy and love of film by kicking off first with the Weekend Review, a segment where we talk about what movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode, move on to the main event, which is a main review or topic of discussion, and then finish up with our recommendations through Film Faves, a list of our favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, we will be reviewing Boz Lerman's Elvis and... Related to that, our film faith segment will be about unreliable narrators and our favorite movies with unreliable narrators. But first, we have just a handful of things to talk about in the week in review, starting off with Shanna's week. Shanna, what do you have to report to us? Oh, I got to watch Plenty this week. So we'll start with Euphoria, which is available on HBO. It is an HBO show. This stars Zendaya, uh, and that's you know why I was drawn to it. And then we have other amazing people that all of us should know about, like Hunter Schaefer, Angus Cloud, Jacob Elordi. This is a really great cast. Everyone is doing... Great work. Yeah. Mm. I love this show. At first, I was like, whoa, what is happening? Mm. Because you had watched episode one and you said, go have a look at it. And I looked at up to episode four and said, this show is not for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because it's a lot. There's Mm. a lot going on all the time. It's a show about high, mostly it's high school kids. And I'm not 100% sure how old they are, really. But We're following high school kids, seeing the issues that they're dealing with. And it's like a whole completely different world that it doesn't really feel like I can relate to them at all because it's so different. Mm. So I like that. I, it makes me terrified as a parent. Mm. I'm really scared for our son. And I, I, you know, this is a show. So it's obviously going to be a very concentrated all the time mixture of things you know like a constant thing you mean you're constantly being bombarded by all these issues that each character is dealing with and there's quite a a large amount of characters at first i couldn't keep up with them but what's nice about the show is they start the episodes after episode two i believe they say okay we're gonna tell you why character a is the way they are and then we sort of follow them but really most of the time we're with zendaya and her issues with dealing with drug addiction and her lashes and her lies oh the lies oh my god it's so terrifying the cinematography is glorious it's beautiful there's so many gorgeous shots uh the color scheme is amazing it's hbo you're supposed to expect this of them they stuck the landing and that's great well okay so you brought up the cinematography who's the cinematographer in the show and while you're looking that up also there's a name another name that has come up a lot because of this show and that's sydney sweeney how is sydney sweeney in the series while you're looking up the cinematographer oh she was she was in the white lotus and she's in the handmaid's tale i don't remember in the handmaid's tale but i do remember her in white lotus i am a fan of her yeah I like her. I like that character. I can sort of relate to the character that. in Euphoria, to be clear. Yes, okay. to, yeah. 
Um, I think she's doing a great job. A lot of people in here are amazing and I want good things to happen to them, you mm, know, mm-hmm. and for them to get whatever they want in their life. There's a couple cinematographers. It just depends on where you're looking. Marcel Rev, but it looks like they have a couple of other people too, depending okay. on when you're watching the show. Gotcha. There's Excellent. a lot of stuff happening in this show, but what I do enjoy is by about episode four or five is we start to see a lot of the female characters showing us how they are being empowered by the scary situation I feel that they're in right now, like Ah. how they're growing up. So I'm very interested to see how the rest of it goes. I believe season two is finished and available. And season Season three, three, too, yeah. uh, Is it finished and available? I think season three is dropped, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah, that's Euphoria on HBO starring Zendaya. So last question about that. Okay. Who do you recommend this show oh, to? Like, if you like blank, then you're likely to appreciate or enjoy Euphoria. Like, yeah, who would you recommend this show to? Because you, you said it's clearly not for me. Look, uh, I was trying to think of that last night. I think how I feel about this show after I get used to the bombardment of craziness that happens in it, Mm. is it kind of feels, in a way, similar to Birds of Prey. What? So just bear with me. In Birds of Prey, (laughs) we're seeing women who are already in their power or get their power and ride the wave of batshit crazy, Uh you know? Uh And I feel like that sort of happens in Euphoria. If you're into fashion, if you're into makeup, uh-huh. the, if you're into cinematography, this is good for you. It's like Birds of Prey by way of Joker. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it's it's in yeah. no way the same tone well, as Birds of Prey. I, I Maybe I need to think about it more. Okay. Uh, what I'm saying, <laughs> it's like the druggy version. Like, if we watched all the Birds of Prey. <laughs> Yeah, like Birds all of prey hyped on, up on drugs on heroin. and and exploring their sexuality like yeah. to the I don't know to like the extreme. Yeah. Then yes, this is what all it right. would be. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So that's Euphoria on HBO Max. You also checked out a couple more shows on the other side of the spectrum. I have on Prime Reacher, uh-huh. starring. Alan Richson and Malcolm Goodwin and Willa Fitzgerald. I am a big fan now of Malcolm Goodwin. Apparently, he's in that zombie show on Netflix. Oh, I'm not familiar. Okay. He might have... It looks like maybe one episode or something. No, he's been there oh, since 2015. Oh, iZombie. That's, that's not yeah, originally sorry. a Netflix show, but yeah, okay. Okay. So anyway, uh, this is a show about... Like, if I have to explain it, how the characters in the show explain it is like a big, beefy man <laughs> comes into town and starts beating people up. <laughs> so something has happened and Reacher comes into town and he's trying to solve a mystery. Two people join in with the, the mystery and that is the Malcolm Goodwin character and the Willa Fitzgerald character. And it's okay. It's a completely different pace <laughs> to Euphoria. Uh-huh. It's just your normal show of trying to s- unravel a mystery so it's it's also based on a novel uh, by i don't i don't know who the novel's by but it's lee child uh, okay 
And there was a film adaptation with Tom ha- Tom Hanks, <laughs> Tom Cruise called Jack Reacher. How does... It does not feel the same to me. Okay. You um, saw it that feels one. totally okay. different. And okay. I saw it a few, you know, when it came out. Yeah. So I could be not remembering something, but this is completely different. And I kind of like the dynamic that he has with the other characters. Uh, in the show. Yeah, in the show. I, I see the, a little bit of his background as to what shapes him. And it's fun. It's it's not extreme. Okay, so it actually is worthwhile, Reacher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's fun, but it's light. You know, if you if you need a break from serious stuff like Euphoria, Reach is a great one to wash down with. It's a chaser. <laughs> is there more than one season of that yet? Looks like it's just nine episodes, season one. Okay, very good, and that's on Prime. Lastly, Shanna, you, you are a crime show fan. The Law & Order, You last episode or two, you talked about Bones, yeah, Closer. Major you know, crimes. Major crimes. You I are, used to watch the CSIs. Right. So you're a big crime show fan. And I could not believe <laughs> that you had never seen ABC's NYPD Blue, which was a... Is where one of the main characters from CSI Miami comes from. Huge, so. hugely influential and innovative network tv show from the early 90s that lasted for apparently 12 years i think lasted a long time and so you finally checked it out it's available on what was that hulu yeah it's on hulu there are 12 seasons it was from 98 93 till 2005 Okay. So it was around for a very long time. and So you yeah. got a taste of this. You watched a handful of episodes. Yeah. Finally got to hear where Sipowitz comes from. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> that gets referenced in pop culture all the time. Aha. Uh-huh. So that was a lot of fun. All right. And your thoughts so far on NYPD Blue? Man, well, it's only... I only just finished episode four. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to stick around for 12 seasons. (laughs) I don't know if that's what I want in my life. Uh, It's a good background show. I need a background show. And what I mean by that is like, hey, I'm in the kitchen. I'm chopping stuff up. I want something that I don't have to necessarily concentrate very hard on. Mm. Somewhat appropriate for the teenage son walking in and out of the kitchen. Oh, is Um, it? Okay. You know, it's not not major crime. I mean, it's not... um, Criminal Minds? Yeah, it's not Criminal Minds. So You're talking about in terms like, of violence. Yeah, I feel like we're in a sort of safe spot unless things are about to unravel. Well, I mean, the show had a huge reputation for being edgy in in a lot of ways. Oh. I mean, there's like nudity and, and... Oh, yeah. So the cinematography is very 90s in the first four episodes. Okay. It's a lot of orange and blue tinting. It's a lot of uh, yellow. It's... Very interesting. I like seeing shots of New York, mm. even though they're very whiplashy <laughs> at times. The The score is a lot of fun. It, I don't even know how you would explain it. It's yeah. Isn't it Mike Post who did the score to that? Who was, you know, he had done the you know tv themes and scores to several tv shows by that point yeah it looks like mike post was it but uh you know also did law and order special victims unit i guess and Mm -hmm. well he probably did all the law and orders let's get real but he's done a lot of work Mm -hmm. and it just it felt like steel drums it felt very (laughs) like jamaican 
No, not Jamaican. <laughs> it felt like it was like a sprinkling of this, a sprinkling of that, kind of, you know, reflecting New York's melting pot mm. of different cultures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that that's fun. At times, it's a bit much because it's very 90s as well. Mm. It's like, whoa! <laughs> um, like thrown it's back in time. trying too hard or, or No, what? I don't think it's too hard. It's just, it's very of that time. I think other uh. people probably took from that. Oh. And so, you know, you've always said like without this show, you wouldn't have that show. And I think without this one, you wouldn't have a lot of the others. Mm. So. I see. I see. So uh, any, any cons to the, well, the cons are, it, it feels dated to you. Any pros? Well, the cons are also, I've, you know, Sipowitz is not a pleasant guy. So he's very prickly. He's very, he doesn't reflect. He Mm. hasn't reached a point where he's reflecting on what he's saying. Mm. Um, He is being racist. He is being sexist. He is being a chauvinist. He is a fucking asshole. (laughs) And I don't know if I want to, it looks like he never leaves. So (laughs) I just looked at the episodes and I'm like, oh, Jesus. Well, I don't know. I might sit through a season okay and decide from there but if he doesn't start getting himself (laughs) right i'm like i would much rather do something else it's not a love at first watch with the closer well it was love at first watch yeah but that's like that was like an instant favorite sort of thing you know those those things in between for you you know Law and Order, I have a lot of respect for, mm. and the different ones that come from that, mm. that, that is the spinoffs. Yeah. I respect that show, and at times we'll go back to it. Mm-hmm. I think I would, if I had to, would you rather sift through, I don't know, 25 seasons of Law and Order Special Victims Unit, or would you sit through NYPD Blue? Yeah. I think I would rather follow the characters in Law and Order. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, very good. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, I'm glad you checked it out. Regardless of how much further you do continue it, I'm glad you've, you've at least seen it and gotten an impression of it either way. So that is NYPD Blue on Hulu. And is that everything for your week in review? Yeah, that's it for me. All right. How about you? So I just have a couple things in my week in review. First of all, I'm chipping away at the James Bond series. I have finished the Brosnan era, and there is an article available for you to read where I review all the Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan films and rank them. So check that out at thegibsonreview.com. I'm now working my way through the Daniel Craig movies. That'll be the second to last article when I finish that. It probably will be available sometime shortly after you're listening to this uh, episode of the podcast. So stay tuned. Check in on the blog occasionally for that. And second to that, I finished... I don't think I got a chance to talk about this in the last episode. Maybe I watched it right after we recorded the last episode, more or less. I finished This Is Us, which was its series finale. How many seasons in total are there? Well, it started in 2016. I almost said 2006. That's not right. (laughs) It started in 2016. Had a long run, just like NYPD Blue. (laughs) Yeah. 106 episodes. I think six seasons is what it comes down. Five or six seasons. It was a nice 
brief sort of not drag things out kind of thing, much like Friday Night Lights uh, was, which we're big fans of. And I got to say, I absolutely loved This Is Us. And I I love how it ends, too. It's interesting because it really feels like the second to last episode is the final episode. And the last episode is like the denouement kind of thing where it everything kind of... What do you mean? Well, uh, the denouement is, um, is, is a French a term that kind of refers to... The part of a story after the climax, the arc of the story kind of comes back down and we reach the conclusion kind of thing. And it's it's interesting because it's not like the final moments of the series packs any wallops or anything. It just has a very like satisfactory ending. You know, it's very satisfying. Mm. Uh, it kind of just winds things down your time with these characters and and but the 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 previous episodes you know people this this show has a reputation for making people cry and it's interesting because that either attracts people or it draws people away i think like those that are like turn and, and run away from it when they hear that is because they're af- afraid of that it's sad all the time and they don't want to feel those feelings of sadness. But really, most of the time that I am moved to tears is not because of the show being sad. It's because of how beautiful it is, mm-hmm. what it is depicting, how relatable it is, how touching it is, how um, you know moving it is. Not so much because man that was really sad (laughs) you know and i think this is this show is an incredible drama series i want to give a huge shout out to not only the writers because the writing in this show is incredible uh writing and writing credits is quite long but the bulk of the writing credits goes to such people as laura canar ebony freeman john dorsey and ko yegan but also the editor of the series if i can find that person's name there's such a huge cast of characters over so many seasons the editor of the series is um most of the work is done by Julia Grove, Howard Letter, Bjorn Myholt, and Lysan Ho. There are a handful of other editors in a handful of other episodes throughout the seasons. But I think this show is a tour de force in editing because you have a huge cast of characters and also you have different timelines that or time periods that this show bounces between for maximum emotional effect often and without the editing being as precise and uh, exceptional as it is like this show just would collapse and would not work and mm. so that is uh, fantastic and on top of it often the music by Siddhartha Kolsa 
Kosla is fantastic too. And it's just one of those shows that in the end it's emphasizing how important family is, but also like important living in the present with in these little moments that you create with each individual or the grouping of your family members. Mm. It's really something that is beautiful it, it is a show that represents dichotomy in life. There's there's good things, there's bad things, there's love, there's pain, there's ups, there's downs, and all sorts of things. There's a dichotomy. Uh, there's life, there's death. There's everything throughout our time on Earth. And it, I haven't seen a show so beautifully paint. Uh, that that uh, that portrait of life as this is us, and also lastly, I just want to shout out a few cast members. Mandy Moore, especially, uh, she is such a great actress. She's getting back into music again, but man, she I really hope she gets more acting work because she's fantastic. Sterling K. Brown, of course came up through this show especially in terms of his popularity and awareness he's done so many projects since and he's been a great actor justin hartley i'm a big fan of i knew of him from smallville as the green arrow prior to this show and he does some fantastic dramatic work here as kevin pearson susan kalecki watson is amazing she is so fun. She's often the tension breaker. She is a great uh, foil or, or partner to Sterling K. Brown's character. They're just really great. Chris Sullivan is awesome. John Huertas as Miguel is just, he's beautifully acted. The list goes on. The kids in the show are, are really impressive. Chrissy Metz, Milo uh, Ventimiglia, uh, you know, I, he's a character who I was worried was going to outstay his welcome for various reasons in the first half of the series, but the show manages to to pull off justifying his presence through most of the series. So I, I highly recommend if you love family dramas and somehow you haven't caught up with This Is Us, if you love 30-something, if you loved uh, Parenthood, those kinds of shows, you need to check out This Is Us. Break it down. If you've left the show, come back to it and finish it up. Do you have a favorite season? Uh, that's an interesting one because this the series, it's really hard for me to break down season by season. I'm not sure if there's a good season or a bad season, really. Maybe if I rewatched it, I'd be able to have a better perspective in that regard. But it seems so like constant in its quality. It's such mm-hmm. a like plateau or you know, the bar is set high with the first few episodes and it pretty much stays up there throughout the entire run of the show. Which is not something you can say very often about TV shows, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if I have a favorite or uh, a season I think, ooh, you know, that's rough. Even Friday Night Lights, you know, 
That's, that's hard, yeah. You know, that show had, you know, at least one season you could be like, eh, that one's kind of rough. But uh, not so much with This Is Us. Mm. So anyway, I'll stop with my recommendation. You can find it on Hulu. And that ends the Week in Review. There's no our Week in Review this time because we really haven't watched much together of note so we're going to move on to the main event which is our review of elvis there are some who'd make me out to be the villain of this here story let's don't let a good thing die Are you born with destiny? Or does it just come knocking at your door? He's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee. Give him a warm hayride welcome. Mr. Elvis Presley. Get a haircut, buttercup. In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. He was my destiny. I wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. Walk to a party in the town of jail. Are you ready to fly? I'm ready. Ready to fly. Tomorrow, all of America will be talking about Elvis Presley. I can't move, I can't sing. Some people want to put me in jail. So well's moving. They might put me in jail for walking across the street, but you're a famous white boy. The way he sings is God-given, so there can't be nothing wrong with it. Martin Luther King has been shot to death in Memphis. That's all right for you. Tragedy, but it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with us. Oh, my Lord, my darling, I've hungered for your touch. Reverend once told me, when things are too dangerous to say, sing. Sing! And nobody's gonna remember me. I need to get back to who I really am. And who are you, Oz? I just gotta be making the most of this thing while I can. This call will be over in a flash. the same you and i we are two odd lonely children reaching for eternity the greatest show on earth elvis has left the building so that's from the trailer to Boz Lerman's Elvis, the latest biopic 
as mentioned by director Boz Lerman, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Sam Brummel and Craig Pierce. This stars Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker, Austin Butler as Elvis, Olivia Dijon, Helen Thompson, Richard Roxburgh, who's been in other Lerman films, David Wenham, Cody Smith-McPhee, and more. So when we talk about or review movies, we first try to focus on the good, what worked for us about a film, what were its strengths, then talk about the bad, what didn't work for us, what sucked about a film, what were its weaknesses, and then we typically go into spoilers and final thoughts. However, in for this film, we decided there's not really a reason to have a spoiler section. So we will be doing a non-spoiler review and getting our general thoughts about the film and the good and the bad, and then summing up whether or not the good outweighs the bad uh, without going into the nitty-gritty specifics of the film. So Shanna... Maz Lerman, he has done Strictly Ballroom, Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge, Australia, Great Gatsby. I don't know if I'm missing anything that else that he's done, uh, but how many of those films have you seen? And, and, and to sum up, how big of a Lerman fan are you? And did that in any way affect your... Uh, you know, your feelings going into this film. I'm a huge fan of Moulin Rouge. I've watched most of his films that you've just mentioned. I can't remember if I've actually seen Strictly Ballroom. I might have. Mm -hmm. But I tread lightly with Baz Luhrmann Mm. because Moulin Rouge was just so spectacular. Mm. And, you know, then we had Australia, then we had Great Gatsby, and they, they weren't that great. And I think what Boz Lerman battles with is consistency. Mm. Uh, I know that sounds a little weird, but, you know, whether it's about visual effects that he's doing, whether it's the cinematography, what seems to be happening with Boz Lerman's films is they're starting to, uh, you know, whatever his team is or however he's running his team, it definitely seems to be a lack of cohesiveness Mm. so i tread lightly i think that when people are in a boz lerman film most of the time they're giving their all and i don't think that the actors are messing up or anything like that so i just i tread lightly if he knocks it out of the park like he did with moulin rouge fantastic Uh Uh, moulin rouge was really special so i also understand that so for you, like of all the things that you've seen of his, it's really just Moulin Rouge that you've that you've liked. Yeah. How about you? Well, I've seen Strictly Ballroom once, probably a decade after it came out. I finally caught up with that, mm. uh, maybe longer. And then I, I've seen everything pretty much except Australia, and I didn't see Australia because oh. the the word of mouth on Australia pretty unanimously was. Yeesh. That I'm, is pretty rough. I'm wondering if maybe he's... Is he good at real-life stuff? I mean, I think that he's good at really fantastical things that have real elements to them. Hmm. 
But when you're doing something like Australia, it to me it felt like he was trying to be really real. And I don't know if that's good for him. Hmm. Great Gatsby was a film that I almost immediately hated while watching it. Yeah, that was really sad. Because, well, we can get into it a little bit later, but I will say that I I feel like he's someone who peaked with Moulin Rouge. I love Romeo and Juliet. I I think Strictly Ballroom's a really good debut Mm. film, but he really kind of like got he had like this this what do you call like this slope upward okay and then then and then went and then it just dropped and he he's not prolific he hasn't he releases a movie like once every seven to ten years or something like that you know Mm. so i don't know and he does he does chanel commercials and stuff like that in between i don't know what it is that is an issue with him why it takes him so long to create another film maybe he doesn't have to i don't know what his deal is but i do think that 20 years ago uh he was one of the most exciting innovative filmmakers and he's since kind of been a one-trick pony so i was not excited going into elvis at all and i feel like (laughs) If we were not reviewing it, much like Jurassic Park Dominion in our last episode. Oh, two movies in a row for Yeah, you. yeah. <laughs> I probably would have skipped this film. Now, that said, you know, I might have streamed it based on influence of the reviews it's gotten, which are fairly positive. I want to say it's got like a high 70s or somewhere in the 80s on Rotten Tomatoes. I think only like 105 uh, critics that have seen it did not like it and do not recommend it. But yeah, I was not looking forward to this. Mm. That said, did this film exceed your expectations? What was good about Elvis? What exceeded my expectations was Austin Butler. He was amazing as Elvis. And it was, I every time he was on on the camera it was it was great i was having a good time whenever tom hanks was on it it was hit or miss Mm. but we can get to that later so i think the best part here was austin butler so you know sometimes we got those wonderful camera movements that we expect from Baz Luhrmann. You know, there were newspapers articles things spinning the camera going in and out and rotating you know, in a circle as it was doing that. Mostly the cinematography was great. Colors, lights. This is like a rock concert type setting, you know, very Mm. stage lit, all Mm. that jazz. I actually want to ask you, as you're talking, you're reminding me, you are kind of an outsider watching this film too. And I, I, I was very interested in your thoughts. Like, what did this movie do for you as a film about someone from the past who is a cultural, an American cultural icon? Yeah. Was it successful for you? Did you learn a lot about him and and create a new appreciation? I, I don't think it was that kind of film. Okay. You know, it wasn't for me. It wasn't really one where I'm learning more about the person. Uh. 
you learn a little bit through this film, but not that much. It has made me more curious. Like I want to look up other works that are written about him from fairly authentic people. Elvis probably was big in South Africa, but probably not that much. Mm. Uh, When I was a kid, my exposure to Elvis was people dressing up like Elvis and doing hoo hoo things with awesome. Doing what? What No, I'm not doing that again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, doing awesome things with studs and rhinestones and and Uh. awesome hair and glasses, you know, Mm. and capes. So I just saw it as a cartoon character Mm. growing up. And then when I watched Lilo and Stitch, Lilo has this great idea to make Stitch lovable. And she's like, well, we should have you sing like the king because everybody loved him. And if you can sing like the king, then you can, everyone's going to love you. It's going to be okay. The king of rock and roll. Yeah, the king of rock and roll. And so that was my exposure to Elvis. So seeing this film, I was kind of excited about it because I wanted to know more. Now, you don't really learn that much about him. It's more just a, let's, Tom Hanks's character telling you the story of Elvis. And Mm. even though there's times where Elvis is alone and we're seeing him be whoever he really was, there's times where Tom Hanks comes in. And so I find myself not trusting a lot of the movie Uh. because it's mostly his perspective. Mm. So no, I didn't, I didn't learn a lot from this. Uh, We listened to one of the, one of Elvis's albums when we got home and I was like, Oh my God, this man is amazing. Mm. And what I did wish I saw from the film or rather from the person was like, well, what else did he do as how did he get involved in the civil rights movements and um, getting if at, all. E- if at all and getting equality for black people? He was so in love with the culture of jazz and everything mm. that was black culture. He grew up in it mm. according to this movie. So I want to know well, what did he do to fight for them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if anything if anything mm-hmm. so that's kind of my initial thoughts on this film as to what i liked mm. uh, what about you as someone who knows a lot about elvis probably i would not describe myself as an elvis aficionado mm-hmm. i am i am a mild audiophile as well as a huge cinephile so and also i am of the generation that kind of grew up in the shadow of Elvis's life, right? Like he died three years before I uh, was born. And so his legacy was still huge, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. like Stephen King wrote a novel called Needful Things. One of the things that sticks in my head is Stephen King wrote a novel uh, called Needful Things. And one of the characters in that was obsessed with Elvis, right? And and Elvis memorabilia. And I feel like the eighties and whatever people were still like reconciling. There's this like rumor of did Elvis even really die, you know, and, and Mm. and stuff like, so people were still wrestling with the legacy of Elvis when I was growing up and, and, and his death too. Mm. So I had an awareness of Elvis. He was he was bigger than life in terms of like being the king of rock and roll. He was a legend, 
you know, who, who uh, just died. And, and he was also like, he let himself go for various reasons or whatever toward the end of his life. And so he was also parodied. That part of his life was parodied too. You know, so you'd see cartoons with Fat Elvis or whatever or some some variation on that and then the, the costumes and stuff. So yes, I I was of a generation that was where Elvis was pretty much, and his legacy was pretty much everywhere he was a, a big part of the history of rock and roll mm. and appreciation of rock and roll. He was the king of rock and roll and and for various reasons. So I do have an awareness of him in that regard. And there's things that happen in this movie that being somewhat of an audiophile, I was, I'm like, aha, yes, mm-hmm, right? I know about that as it's about to happen. Or, oh, you know, that's what's going to happen. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But then there would be things in this movie that it would kind of, uh, what's the word, crystallize a little bit more, clarify a little bit more for me, yeah. you know, what that thing was, you know, like the Christmas special or other things, you know, why why does he have an attachment to Las Vegas in his legacy and all this, mm-hmm. you know, the, the film did kind of crystallize some of that, but I agree with you. More more than anything else, the strengths of this film comes down to Austin Butler. I think yeah, this definitely. is a guy I'm not terribly familiar with, but apparently he's been working for the past 15 years. And he's done like a lot of TV work. He starred in many episodes of a handful of TV shows. Uh, and he was, you know, he's had bit parts and things like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I really think this, he's going to be a star thanks to this movie. Like, yeah. all that work is finally going to pay off. Yeah. And he's he broke big here. I certainly hope so. I, I think he deserves whatever he wants <laughs> with roles and things. I think that his, his performance as Elvis is uncanny and incredible. I, I think... Mm. That, you know, you look at pictures of him and in his day to day and he also used to have long hair and stuff. And you're like, well, that he doesn't look anything like Elvis, but he's made up so well. And he has like the the physical features that lend very well to him looking like Elvis and his mannerisms, the way he talks, he transformed his voice, all sorts of things. He he did an incredible job here. However, there are also moments where I'm like, he looks like a young John Travolta. You know? Yes. Well, sort of borderline, right? Yeah. Um, but regardless, he's fantastic. And he is, I mean, he needed to carry this film, yeah. right? He is someone who, if he isn't great, like the film falls apart, right? So um, he, he's the, the biggest strength of this film, no matter what else I'm about to say about this yes. film. Uh, as we tear out a new one it has austin butler in it and that's that's a very good thing i also want to add that without austin butler i wouldn't we wouldn't have a character that we now love right because he is just able to really help us empathize for elvis he Mm. was in a shit situation kind of like a an amy winehouse situation uh, Some comparison uh, can be made. Yeah, I think I think there's he, huge differences between those those two situations. Okay. But yeah, but he was someone who did get 
trapped and taken yeah, advantage of. was definitely of. a workhorse situation. And I feel really badly mm. that he was treated that way. And it makes me happy to know that people like Taylor Swift are, take, are able to take control of their stuff and... Well, and, and a lot of there's been a lot of male artists since Elvis too that have um, either been burned or, or been burned and then learned, um, and were able to protect themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. good. You know. So yeah, I'm trying to think what else really worked for me about this film. Maybe there's a maybe something else will come to me as we talk about it, but. Is there anything else that occurs to you that is a strength of the film? In the beginning of the film, it's really lovely to see how strong his family support him. I mean, his, mm. his, everybody is saying, oh, his hip thrusts are just absolutely awful and so sinister. Uh. And his mother is great. She's like, it's God-given. Let him do what he needs to do. He's so funny. And I just really love that. Yeah, I just was very, I I had a very mixed experience with this movie where the first third of it, I was fairly certain I hated it. Mm. And then after the first third, I started thinking, okay, well, it has its strengths, but, you know, know, and then the movie went on and... When it hits, it hits really well. There are good moments and affecting moments at times in the film. It's just there's so many other things that I want to get to here that is a problem. That is that 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 I I had a hard time with. So let's move on to the bad Shanna. What what, what issues did you have, if any, with Elvis? Well, I definitely had issues. I hated the character you're supposed to hate. You're supposed to hate the snowman. Uh, colonel Parker. Colonel yeah. Parker. I don't really want to call him a colonel. Uh, Parker. And... I think that that's that's fine and good, but I really, really hated him. And so and every time I saw him on screen, I was just annoyed. Well, do you do, were you annoyed by Tom Hanks performance or is it just I think just the character? So okay. I guess he did. I guess that's one good thing before I jump into all the bad uh-huh. uh, is Tom Hanks did his job. Okay. I, I hate his character Okay, <laughs> you know, for who he is. Here's the thing. Uh, as I said earlier, Boz Lerman doesn't seem to be executing consistency throughout his work, and it really shows in this film. We start the film with Snowman being rushed to the hospital, and he's been aged horribly, kind of aged to the point where it's like, okay, you've had a life where you were overweight for quite some time of your life, and now you've lost weight because you've gotten older, and it didn't look good. So he had really thin, scrawny arms, and his his face was still weathered. It just wasn't consistent, The I guess, the costuming, as well as the cinematography, because Boz Lerman does this thing with the camera where he focuses on the eyes very sharply, but then everything else is out of focus but it's not a natural out of focus it's like a pushed post-processing out of focus technique I think and that's how it looked and so I really don't think that the first few shots of Tom Hanks are going to hold up very well as early as the DVD being released 
uh, never mind a year or two from now. So the cinematography will have these moments where anything uh, realistic, so Elvis on stage with his band, that, that's pretty easy in a sense, you know, of looking, analyzing the cinematography of this film. Uh, it's traditional, it's grounded in realism, it's mm. getting that starry eye look mm. uh, of that time. That's great. But then it's very jarring when we're like at the carnival and you're expecting we're going to have nice glowy out of focus lights. Mm. It's going to be very warm or it's going to be very cool depending on what we're doing. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue is that damn out of focus filter is artificial. Mm. So you're not getting that natural look to it. And that's very frustrating because you're creating a film that's realistic it's not like moulin rouge where you have full carte blanche of doing whatever the fuck you want uh-huh. you know this is a real life situation mm. um, about a real person yeah. and you're either gonna go fantastical on a consistent basis or you're gonna be fairly real and i just i feel like he should have been real with the cinematography as opposed to i'm gonna twist this button this way and put that button that way so you're saying it felt artificial yeah it felt artificial it doesn't feel like it's going to hold up very well a year from now when it came to shots that weren't traditional so that was the cinematography that i didn't like i felt like with the music it should have just been elvis and anyone else that recorded during that time you know, mix that in a little bit, depending on where he was, because we do see him go visit Beale Street. Yeah. Is that where he goes? Yeah, And he Memphis. goes to a club, and he's here. we're hearing from other people of the time, and that was wonderful. I would have preferred mm. to be that. I think it was a very magical time in music during that time period. Mm. And we didn't need somebody doing a remix of Elvis's songs. It's not Moulin Rouge where we're making a fantastic make-believe show and yeah. we're going to throw in Smells Like Teen Spirit and it's going to be amazing. That's yeah. This mm. is about Elvis and it should have been about Elvis and those who were around him. Uh. So that was not okay. It could have been nice if they kept that for the credits. It would have been better placed there. Well, it, you know, there was something like that in, in the credits, actually. But. Yes, but having it throughout the film, mm. it happened once or twice, I believe, mm. that's not good. Anything else occur to you? I think in the third act, the editing of what was happening to Elvis with, you know, the drug use, the alcohol use, the paranoia that was being pushed upon him to further keep him in the cage. It was a good opportunity, but at times the editing didn't really make sense. And instead it made me want to throw up rather than be like, oh my gosh, this poor guy. Uh. So that's all I can think about right now. How about you? I'm sure you have lots of thoughts. I will try to recall and get through all of my thoughts. Uh, first of all, uh, and maybe going as chronological as I can through the film will help with while still being general about it and not giving too much away. Uh, first of all, I, I mentioned that during the first third of the film, I was pretty much hating my hating my experience, and and part of that is because. Much like with The Great Gatsby, Lerman tries to recapture this trick he did at the beginning of Moulin Rouge, where he's trying to dazzle you and and, uh, make this whirlwind experience to bring you in. 
And the problem is it, it, it feels like a, a party trick that he's just constantly doing at this point. And it, in each time when he's, when he's t- tackling be it the great Gatsby, the story, or if he's trying to tell the story of someone's life, it feels very inorganic and it feels like in this case, especially for 30 minutes straight, the movie is not stopping. The editing is not stopping. The pace is not stopping. It's go, 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 go. And it's exhausting mm. rather than captivating. Mm-hmm. And frustrating. And also, he does things, it's almost like a, a an Elvis life for idiots kind of thing, where he, he really, like, gets so on the nose about things. Like, there's a, there's a moment, I remember in the first third, where you see Elvis the boy looking in on a, a shack, it feels like. I don't. I, I. I feel like I'm. I'm supposed to believe that it's like there's a prostitute in there, but there's also like a blues musician in there, and he's performing. And Elvis is focusing on the blues musician and captivated by the blues musician. And then, literally fifty to hundred feet away, there happens to be a tent of gospel. There's like a gospel. Um, the Southern Baptist type worship tent and gospel music is playing and it's just like this <laughs> it, it felt so on the nose and literal in its depiction of elvis's influences of you turn your head this way and there is a bluesman playing but then a hundred feet away you had gospel music playing it just so happened to be when they're worshiping it, uh, you know, there's moments like that 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 just feel like dumbed down versions of reality to get the point across that were frustrating. You're right about, and this is another thing that frustrated me. It's and, and worried me going into the movie, honestly, because I know that Boz likes to try to dazzle the audience and he he likes to be all about flair and flash i was worried that he wouldn't let the music speak for itself mm-hmm. and so when he's at this neighborhood of white people in their apartment complex a hip hop version or, or song kind of kicks in mhm and it felt inorganic. Yeah. It felt anachronistic in a bad way. In this, in, in, in it felt like I said it, because it's in there inorganic, and it felt like Boz just couldn't let the music of the bluesman or Elvis himself or people of BB King, whoever it is of that time, Big yeah. Mama Thornton. Just, you know, he couldn't trust that that would interest the audience and the audience wouldn't fall in love with it on its own merits. Well, I think it's a Boz element, you know, and when he's doing a fantastical story, it works. But this isn't a fantastical story. It's a story about a fantastic person. And I think you're right. He couldn't help himself. But I feel like that's him. 
Well, it, and it's, it's, it's that's not needed in this film. It's not. It's something you. I recall correctly. It's it's not something you saw in his filmography until Moulin Rouge, hmm. and Moulin Rouge was such a huge splash. I feel like he's. And I don't know if he does this at all in Australia, but I feel like since then he's been trying to recapture that Mulan magic. And he I feel like he doesn't understand what made Mulan Rouge special and unique. And you can't just copy it. And I find that very frustrating. And it takes me out of his movies, which, by the way, almost always are period pieces and I feel like he he does not trust the audience to care about the material without it. And I I really hate that. I also, I, I, I hate that the movie is so on the nose about some things. I mean, like, literally, he's seen in suspicious minds in a scene that... And he's, like, repeating particular lyrics in Suspicious Minds mm. to underscore how Elvis, what Elvis's situation is there. You know, this yeah. is um, just such such uh, bluntness in his filmmaking here that it really is frustrating. The Unreliable Narrator. Yeah. It... Colonel Tom yeah. Parker. Now, here's what's frustrating about I this. I could just say Tom Parker. The movie takes place supposedly with Parker on his deathbed and he's like just he's he's dying basically and he's telling this story supposedly his, his to set the record straight uh. but the movie doesn't even work as an unreliable as a narration or let alone unreliable narrator story because so much of the movie happens outside of of Tom Parker's purview like, there's so many scenes with just Elvis and other people. So the move, the writing doesn't even work in its framework that it tries to set up. Hmm. It, it fails in its, its perspective that it sets up. You know, so that, that's a huge issue as well. Just the writing fundamentally, the structure of the, the script fundamentally fails. Oh, God. I'm, I've, now I'm at a point where I feel like I'm starting to forget things that I wanted to speak to. But there's so many things about this film that I think are issues and make it a very frustrating experience at times for me. Oh, that's the other thing. I was interested in hearing your thoughts and our son's thoughts about Elvis because I didn't think the movie actually told you anything or, or let you know who Elvis is. You see Elvis start to wear flashier outfits. You see start certain haircuts. You see certain things. But you don't get to know why he makes those decisions. What happens with him that makes the progression of his, his wardrobe... You know, you don't get to know really much about his motivations. You get told things. Literally, characters will tell you things about who's feeling what or what is happening. Well, I think with his fashion, they spoke briefly about it, um, how he loved to go to Beale Street and go to a particular tailor that 
he would right. that um bb king would go to as well apparently right or at least believe are led to believe that in the film you're right and then you know he goes away to germany he comes back he does films in hollywood and right. then he's like he needs to get back to him and he right. consults with those other two men from nbc i think uh-huh, uh-huh. and they say bring on leather and then you kind of see him doing leather suits and capes after that and so so i thought they were sort of connected um somehow okay so here's the thing you're absolutely right that the, the film does actually set up Elvis's style early on in his career and why that was. You're right. But it doesn't in any way really explain after that and beyond that. Yes, he 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 is he wears a leather suit in a Christmas special <laughs> and that that um he is told to wear or whatever. But Beyond that, the the jumpsuits and everything, the the hairstyle, the shades, everything in his day to day, he gets more and more excessive, and we never really get inside the mind of Elvis in this movie. We never really understand, and we don't understand what happens with the drugs, what he's taking, we, uh, what, it's what not sort very of issues. It's clear at all. He's married, and all of a sudden we see a scene where another woman is in his bed, and he's he's calling, he can't make it um, back to his family. There's so many things that were told, but were not really... They weren't executed well. Given they an didn't, understanding. They didn't stick the landing. They didn't... You're right. We don't actually get to see Elvis. We just get to see, I guess, nonsense because this is how it relates to the unreliable narrator. He's just showing you, he's the one showing you this is what was going on. If the film was consistent in its writing from that perspective, I would understand. Okay, cool. Well, I think it it chops and changes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which... And it, bad. it leaves someone like you yeah. and younger generations not really knowing who Elvis is. No. No. But it does make me want to go find out for myself. Mm. Which there's merit in that. Is there anything else you wanted to speak to that were issues that you had or, or anything that I said that you wanted to speak to? What have you? I the last thing you mentioned, I think you're right. It's like there's an inconsistency in execution and with the writing of the film. They mm. can't make up their mind. It's like they're taking a little bit from here and a little bit from there. Mm. So it's a very superficial experience as a result. You know, you have to come back to like, well, who did it well? I think the Johnny Cash film was really well executed. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of critics, you know, it's the blueprint of what not to do in a biopic and the whole um, in the sense of how long a time period it depicts. And I I get that criticism. But, you know, we've talked about that film before. We're big fans of it. It's a very grounded film compared to something like this, too. Yeah, I, I think that's all I got. Okay, so does the good outweigh the bad? And what would you rate the film? I think if you have seen Austin Butler before, like I had seen him in Shannara Chronicles, I think you should really go and watch this. I think 
I think he's the best part of it. Mm. And then when he goes to Beale Street, I think that's one of my favorite scenes. Mm. And I would probably rate it a six. But really, those all those stars go to Butler. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted to agree with you, but I think that the bad outweighs the good okay. here. And I think... Is a, a five out of ten, and and most of that five comes from Austin. Yeah. But there are also moments that work through peppered throughout the film. So I I can't say it's absolute garbage, but it is a film that has a lot of problems. So I I say if you see this film, walk in cautiously, uh, go into it with caution and. Um, you know, hopefully you get something out of it, but I don't necessarily recommend it. So those are our thoughts on Elvis. We are not going to have a spoiler section and final thoughts. Those are our final thoughts. What are your thoughts on Elvis? And do you agree or disagree with what we had to say about it? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. And now it's time for Film Faves. Film Faves is a segment of the show where we count down our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic, hopefully to give you some new recommendations. In that vein, we try to point you in the direction of where you can find these movies. Uh, we focus on particular streamers that we will highlight if they are on them. HBO Max, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Apple Plus, Disney Plus. I think that's all. I think that's all of them. This topic we're doing is unreliable narrator. Favorite unreliable narrator movies because of the supposed structure in Elvis with Colonel Parker being an unreliable narrator. This was all much. Was this was this an idea you came up with, Shanna? Yeah, at some point we had talked about it, and I thought it would be a great idea to do a list on the unreliable narrator because it's an interesting theme, and there's some really there's a lot of films that rely on that, and sometimes it's a spoiler, and sometimes it isn't. So it just depends. Something mm. like I Tonya, that's just purely the format of it, mm. yeah. and then something. <laughs> that we might mention later. It's a it's a teeny spoiler, but we're uh, hoping that it's okay. I think it's nice to have lists like this because then you can get obsessed with a theme and watch a whole bunch of movies around that theme and figure out who does it well and who doesn't. Yeah, because these are pretty much like recommendations as well as highlights that give you a sense of our taste in film. We'll try not to give away the movies in case you haven't seen them. But, you know, it is true that it, it is dancing, a bit of a dance to yeah. do that with this subject. Uh, this was surprisingly a difficult one because you say there's a lot of great ones, but we actually had to do a joint list because we in our research weren't coming across a lot, especially a lot mm -hmm. that were favorites. And then we would come across ones in our research that were like, well, that, that doesn't really It doesn't count. quite qualify. So As there's a, lists out yeah. there that yeah. are like, 30, 30 movies long, but it's not necessarily fitting the theme in oh, a way that right. we prefer. Right. And so it yeah. seems like the whenever somebody takes on this kind of format, 
they either knock it out of the park or they don't. Mm. It doesn't really seem like an in-between thing. There's a lot of movies, which you'll hear on this list, actually, <laughs> that you'll see on every list. And so we're, we're, we'll, uh, we'll count down our, our 12 favorite unreliable narrator movies. Is there anything else worth mentioning before we dive in? I did regret not watching one or two movies. There just wasn't enough time. Oh, right. So... What was what was one? I that... believe one of them was American Psycho. Yeah, now that is one that I'm not a fan of myself. So but you have seen it. I saw it a long time ago. Okay. It, it's not that it's a bad movie. It's just not my cup of tea. But it seemed like it was one that would be your cup of tea. And so I was hoping you'd be able to pop that one out before the list. But yeah. it didn't quite work. But let's talk about what did. So why don't, let's see. I think, am I starting us off? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Start us off with our number 12. Okay, so our number 12 is Blade Runner from 1982. Uh, This is one that would have barely, probably been right outside my list because it's not a movie I I love. It's a movie I appreciate. I don't know how you feel about it, Shanna, if you feel the same way or if you, you do love Blade Runner. I do love Blade Runner. I prefer the sequel, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, I do love the movie, yeah. Mm-hmm. This film takes uh, place mostly, I think I think it actually works all from the perspective of Detective Deckard, who, who, who hunts replicants, uh, which are beings that were created to do labor on the moon, I believe it was, and have escaped, and have escaped to Earth. And there is a... Not notorious, a a famous question that comes from this movie that puts the narrator into question that I won't necessarily spoil if you haven't caught up with Blade Runner because it's new to you, you're you're a budding cinephile, whatever it is. But it's something that is uh, suggested at the very end of the film. And I do recommend, if you if you haven't seen Blade Runner, I recommend checking out the final cut if you can find it. There are like five cuts of Blade Runner. The final cut is definitely the preferred version, especially over the theatrical cut. So Blade Runner, which is an iconic and influential sci-fi film in its own right, is our 12th favorite unreliable narrator movie. Okay, Shanna, take it away. Our number 11 is from 2001 and is available on Hulu. This is based on a true story, A Beautiful Mind, after John Nash, a brilliant but a social mathematician, accepts secret work in cryptography, his life takes a turn for the nightmarish. It stars Russell Crowe, Ed Harris, Jennifer Connelly, and Christopher Plummer, to name a few, and it's directed by Ron Howard. It's it's one of those, I would say this is one of the lightly step your toe into this topic mm. kind of film. Like if you're going to Blade Runner, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a more intense film. But if you're coming mm. to A Beautiful Mind, it's a little less intense. So uh, that's our number 11. I would say this one's more mentally intense, actually, because he's oh, dealing with paranoia. He, he has a bit of a, a schizophrenia, if I recall correctly. Uh, Blade Runner is atmospheric. Mm. 
It's not fast paced at all. It's a, it takes its time. So I would push back a little bit with that description. It's been a long time since I've seen A Beautiful Mind, but it is an impressive film. So it's a good pick that people can find on Hulu. Mm-hmm. All right. Our number 10 is Shutter Island from 2010, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Emily Mortimer, Mark Ruffalo, Ben Kinsley, uh, just to name a few. We've also got Michelle Williams in there. And Max von Sydow. Mm-hmm. Of course. And Patricia Clarkson. I am a fan of Patricia Clarkson. Hmm. Uh, this is a Martin Scorsese film. In 1954, a U.S. marshal investigates the disappearance of a murderer who escaped from a hospital for the criminally insane. And obviously, it's all happening on an island, so there's no escape. It's very interesting. There's a lot of fun cinematography elements that are happening. And, uh, you know, as far as the unreliable narrator goes... We're seeing the story through Leonardo DiCaprio's eyes, uh, trying to solve this mystery. So it totally appeals to me. (laughs) And, you know, even though we're at like this insane asylum, we're at this criminally insane prison, it's not scary, but it's also got a few jump scares. So that's That's, a lot of fun. That's true. That is definitely a movie that you loved more than me which is why it's so low on the list okay but uh i I, I wouldn't have occurred to me as qualifying for this list but it sure as hell does number nine is uh is one of the greatest films ever made 1950s rashomon by akira kurosawa you can find it on HBO Max thanks to their lovely, what is it? Is it a Criterion Hub or what it's is it called? It's either their Criterion Collection or it's their TCM Collection. TCM, that's what it is. But they kind of have a bunch of different categories in Yeah, that. it's not a Criterion. It's the TCM that has Criterion. Anyway, so this is Akira Kurosawa's uh, famous and uh, excellent masterpiece. It's the one that actually crossed over, the first Japanese film that crossed over into the States and helped popularize and, and kind of help the world see what Japan's up to in film. And it helped influence the likes of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and many more. A rape, and I, I can't remember if it's a murder also. It must be both, I guess. Uh, a murder or a, a crime happens, and we hear what happened from the perspective of four different people, if I recall correctly. And this is a narrative structure that has been used many times since to varying uh, results. And uh, and it's just such an... It's, it's I don't know that very many have executed as well as in this film. Rashomon is an excellent one. If you have not caught up with it, I highly recommend it. And it's easy to do so on HBO Max. Yeah, I'd say that's like one of the first, right? That deals with, in film, that deals with the unreliable narrator. Uh, that's a one good of the first. question. I, I, it looks I, like it's the oldest one sure. on our list. It is that, yes. On yes. our list. Right, so. yeah. Okay, so our next one is at 8, also on HBO Max, Atonement, based on the book uh, by Ian McEwan, directed by Joe Wright. It stars Kira Knightley, James McAvoy, 
one of like his first, right? It's one definitely of his first breakout roles. Yeah, definitely that. And yeah. then Saoirse Ronan when she was much younger. That's um, a notable performance. Was really great. Because um, that made her career. Yes. So it's told through her perspective. She's 13 years old and she has an imagination. She doesn't know much about the world. And uh, she's kind of caught between the two characters, her sister and then... Uh, her sister played by Kira Knightley, and then James McAvoy's character. You know, the two adults in this story are falling in love, and Saoirse Ronan's ca- character gets in the way of that um, and accuses McAvoy of a crime. Yeah. So it's very, very interesting. I read this book in high school. It was oh. what was required, I think, in 11th grade for mm. our finals. Mm. And it was... You know, when you're in 11th grade, it's kind of this huge eye-opening thing of like, hey, there's different perspectives of a story or of events, rather. Sure. Uh, Really great performances, beautiful cinematography, just like a wonderful story. I'm glad that they adapted it. Yeah, that is a fine film. Very, very well done. Our seventh is Christopher Nolan's second film from 2000, Memento, on HBO Max. When people think of unreliable narrators, this is one of the first go-to films that comes up because the film, first of all, is told in reverse order, okay, of events, narratively backwards. That already puts the audience off off its footing. But then you have the reason why. You have a main character with short-term memory loss. So he has to tattoo things all over his body as he tries to figure out who killed his wife. Uh, this is just an excellent film. Very unique. Very uh, interesting. It's very well uh, scripted. It, it's, it's, it's just a tight little thing. And it still holds up to this day. I highly recommend Memento. You know, if I think it's still to this day one of the best things that Nolan has done. Probably still his th- among his three best films. So it's our seventh favorite unreliable narrator film. And you can check it out on HBO Max. That's definitely one I need to rewatch. Hmm. This is like, this could also be the list of, we need to rewatch this. <laughs> mm, mm, yes, a lot of films I haven't seen in a while. The next one is one of those. I feel like you and I watched it at some point. I was told to watch this by my host mom, actually. And okay. I was just like, this is amazing. You totally get me. <laughs> she, yeah. she, it was her first recommendation ah. of what to watch. Ah. Um knowing who I was and so it was really it's always nice when somebody hits the nail on the head with that I feel like when we did our film faves 1995 uh, episode about three four years ago it'd be four years ago at least I think that's when I rewatched it for the first time in years basically you have a a, a, a group of, of criminals who teamed <laughs> up for Essentially, if I recall correctly, it was um, not not a heist, but some sort of um, a teamwork crime like that. And do you remember exactly what the crime was? I don't remember exactly because they're actually, you know, throughout the movie, they're trying to, the investigators are trying to piece together well, what That's, what is actually happening here. Yes, I was so getting to that. Yeah. The less you know, probably the, the more fun for okay. you. Yes, and one particular person is being interrogated. That's Kevin Spacey's 
Verbal Kint, if I recall correctly. And Chaz has uh, Palminteri stars in it, and a lot of really great actors star in it. I highly recommend it. it is the the breakout film of Brian Cena, mm. and it's still one of his best uh, films. It's one of those big reveal movies too, though that, that yeah. happened uh, in the mid to late '90s. So I really like the characters too. Yes, the Usual Suspects. On Amazon Prime is our sixth favorite unreliable narrator movie. We're at the halfway point already, yeah. Shanna. What do we got next? So our number five is available on HBO Max from 2012. It is Life of Pi. It's based on the novel by Yan Martel and directed by Ang Lee. Mm. It stars Siraj Sharma, Irfan Khan, Adil Hussain, Tabu, mm. and several other familiar faces. Like if you see them on the movie you'll know who they are like andrea de stefano uh, gerard depardieu it looks like yeah. yes it's been a long time since i've seen this one yeah uh well i think you know this is one of those really special films where you had said i can't see this unless it's in the theater because it was just such a magnificent visual spectacle there were lots of beautiful fantastical visual elements happening in this film well it was also one of the few where the 3d was an essential aspect of the experience Mm. too it was creatively it was a creative decision to utilize 3d and it was it was done well that is my only viewing of this film and i've preserved that viewing because i know if i were to try watch it in 2d it would always be inferior Mm. and kind of hurt the experience of the film but what is this about it's about a, a young man who's surviving a disaster at sea and he goes on an epic journey and uh, an adventure of discovery while he's on this journey he makes friends with a tiger he's trapped on a <laughs> a boat with the tiger yeah i wouldn't and say he has friends. to figure out how to make that work <laughs> yeah or not work and so it's it's very exciting mm. very unique mm. uh, it's a wonderful ex- uh, experience and the the performances are brilliant yeah i was really i remember also really questioning on lee at that point in his career and if, if he had it still in him and he does he does he did a great job so our fourth favorite unreliable narrator film going back to the 90s again i mentioned the late 90s mid to late 90s having a lot of reveal structure narratives basically and this is another one this is a notorious one this is a big one is the sixth sense from 1999 Mm. essentially bruce willis plays a psychiatrist who's trying to help this little boy who sees ghosts and trying to figure out are these ghosts threatening or is he supposed to do something are they trying to give him clues towards something it's it's uh very atmospheric it's highly effective in its tension and thrills especially on your first viewing you're not really sure if you should be scared and and m night Shyamalan, the director does a really great job of heightening the the using the the horror tropes essentially with jump scares or what have you just quick pans or a cut to something moving uh to kind of really give you this this horror type sense in what is essentially a ghost drama 
with a hell of a, a an ending. It has a twist in the end. It's fantastic. It's famous for its twist. Um, M. Night Shyamalan became famous for his twists for a while mm. because of this movie and every movie after for a while. Uh, it is still, I think, his best film. It holds up the best and one of the best films of 1999. That is our fourth favorite unreliable narrator film, The Sixth Sense. Okay, Shanna, this is a, a big one for you, actually. I was actually surprised that merging our lists together, this ended up ranking as high as it did because this is definitely one that you love more than me, but I do appreciate this film. What is it? It's from 2014. It's Gone Girl. Uh, starring Ben Affleck, Rosamund Pike, Neil Patrick Harris, Tyler Perry, and Carrie Coon, just to name a few. And it's directed by David Flincher, and it's 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 based on the book by uh, is it Gillian Flynn? I believe it's Gillian, but oh, okay. I'm always you know uh, unsure apologies, about that. Apologies, Gillian Flynn, and <clears throat> the book was really popular. I don't read, so I I never checked it out. But the movie was great because it was kind of dealing with a few different things that. Mm you know, either angered you or were kind of like, oh, I see what you mean by that. Like thought-provoking. Yeah, and so it was very interesting. There were lots of interesting articles that were written afterwards in response to this film. Mm, And probably probably of the book as well. Mm. So we're following... This is a tough one. And do the dance. Yeah, let me <laughs> dance for you. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just write. I'll just read the description here on IMDb because that's usually our safe place. Sometimes. Sometimes, with his wife's disappearance having become the focus of an intense media circus, a man sees the spotlight turned on him when it's suspected that he might not be innocent. Yeah. Now, if you've watched crime shows, it's always the husband. It's always the husband. So it's like, okay, yeah. well, what happens? If it's not the husband, if the husband is completely and utterly clueless. Right. So or I, if that's the case at all, yeah. If that is the case. And it's very good film. I watch it every year or so. Mm. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We had looked at our shelves and you had said, well, can our son watch this? And I said, maybe we wait one more year. <laughs> yeah. Because it looks like it's just going to be your average thriller mm. uh, mystery, but... It gets really intense, really freaking fast. Mm. And it's almost whiplashy in how it happens. But it's really great. I love it. That's Gone Girl. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie Coon is great, who would later play Proxima Midnight in Avengers Infinity War. She's fantastic in that film. And, of course, that film really gave Rosamund Pike a huge boost in her career in terms of notoriety. What is, do you want, are you doing the final three or? Oh, I wasn't sure. We should both talk about number one. So I guess, do you want to do number two? Yeah, sure. I'll do the second. Our second favorite unreliable narrator film is from 2010. It is Black Swan available on Hulu and Amazon Prime. Uh, This one, I was actually a little surprised that it didn't quite make the number one spot because I do love this film. Mm. It's it's one of my absolute favorite Darren Aronofsky films. It might be my favorite. I have to rewatch Requiem for a Dream again to decide. It stars Natalie Portman, Mila Kunis, Vincent Castle, and Winona Ryder principally. It is following 
a, an aspiring uh, ballet dancer as she struggles to maintain her sanity after winning the lead role in the production of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. This is an excellent script by Mark Heyman and two others, and it's it's expertly crafted too by director Aronofsky. But that does not surprise anyone who followed Aronofsky through the 2000s in any way. The other writers were Andre Hines and John McLaughlin. And of course, there's always the exceptional performance by Natalie Portman, a career high. A lot of people point to Jackie for her, but I I really think I that... I more towards Black Swan myself. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, And this absolutely. was also great for Mila Kunis. Oh, yes, who unfortunately hasn't gotten anything on this caliber since, I don't think, uh, which, is a, which is a huge bummer because I'm a big fan of Mila as well. Uh, she's a great comedic actress, but I think she needs more dramatic opportunities. So Black Swan is our second favorite unreliable narrator film. Jenna, introduce our number one favorite unreliable narrator film. And, and how is it? That it qualifies. Our number one is available on Hulu from 2017. It is I, uh, This is about the brilliant ice skating champion, Tanya Harding. The ama- why she was so amazing. What she did that may- put her on the map for ice skating champions, figure skating champions. Uh, and how how other people can fuck it up for you, really, mm. is what it is. It stars... Of course, the wonderful Margot Robbie, who is celebrating her birthday this weekend that we're recording. It's got Sebastian Stan. Alison Janney won an, a supporting actress Oscar for this. Paul Walter Hauser plays a significantly yes. awful guy. Uh, mm-hmm. We've even got Bobby Cannavale in there. And um, Julia Nicholson, too. Yes. Let's not overlook her. I think she's an underrated actress. I've seen her in many things prior to I, Tanya. And she plays the instructor. I love this film. It it deals with issues that women are dealing with. You know, when a man fucks up, they get a little slap on the wrist. When a woman fucks up, it's like the end of her life, really. And it's just brilliantly constructed. You know, we've got interviews here and there mixed with the timeline of events. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. The cinematography is so crisp and clean. Uh, the story is brilliant. The performances are amazing. I just love how Margot Robbie, she just, she takes on the character so hard that, you know, you can see her, but most of the time you're seeing the character she's playing and it's wonderful. Yes. The, if you weren't convinced about Margot Robbie prior or haven't seen this film, uh, you need to because it will absolutely convince you that Margot Robbie is is a, a really solid actress. Um, and this film really indicated what she is capable of. At yet, at, you know, she was in her twenties when she was in this film, and so she's got a long road ahead of her. And it's very exciting to see. And uh, yeah, this is a film that I. I think you just you, you like it just slightly more than me, but I do really really like this film a lot, and and Margot Robbie is fantastic, and and Allison Janney is just absolutely hateful 
in oh, this film. It's and so great, especially coming from West Wing, well, where you just sure. love her. Yeah. We were watching that at the time, I think. Okay. And and then we saw her in this, and it was like, whoa! Yeah, yeah. And Hauser is just fantastic as well. So, I, Tanya, our favorite unreliable narrator film. Check it out on Hulu. And that is our favorite unreliable narrator films. You already mentioned we didn't get you didn't get to watch American Psycho. I think Fight Club was the only one that was an outlier because yeah. I had it on my list. You didn't have on yours, so Blade Runner kind of bumped that off. Mm. Uh, that's the only other one that I would consider seriously for this list. But what are your favorite unreliable narrator films? Feel free to email us at the Gibson Review at gmail.com. Shanna, before we talk about the next episode of The Movie Lovers, why don't you share where people can find you online? You can find me on Instagram at Shanna underscore Paxton underscore photography and on Flick Chart Spellbinding A. Fantastic. Go to the Gibson Review.com to find everything all the james bond articles all previous series of reviews including disney and universal monster movies you'll find past uh, episodes of the movie lovers on there and older reviews gibsonreview.com for that go to follow on social media facebook.com slash the gibson review or on instagram the gibson 99 i do bracket polls there and i'm just looking now and it looks like we did favorite john williams score on there that was a very exciting one i was very interested in seeing what instagram would vote as their favorite john williams score and of all the pieces that john william has done I, I highlighted the 16 i didn't do multiples from different franchises but star wars was voted as your favorite john williams score i even put it up against the phantom menace which um almost almost got voted into the bracket by followers and star wars the original recipe still was your favorite uh score john williams score and then i went up against your John Williams uh, score versus your favorite score of all time on Instagram, which was Lord of the Rings, and you couldn't decide. It was split down the middle 50-50. So uh, that is that. I think that is very interesting and, and fun to see. Uh, soon, uh, you know, probably at the time that you hear this episode, we might be in the middle of a favorite 2002 film. So check that out. Participate. Have fun. Next time on The Movie Lovers, we will be reviewing Thor Love and Thunder. Ah, it's finally here. Now, in the press ahead of this film's release, I have been hearing that a significant aspect of this film is the love story between Jane Foster and Thor. And it is a source of much comedy. It is not a romantic comedy film per se, but I think what we'll do for that episode is our favorite romantic comedies. We've done favorite favorite romance films, favorite love stories before, favorite love stories of the decade. Now we'll look at all the romantic comedies. Uh, admittedly, a minefield, that genre of, uh, of a lot of shit. But we'll count down our favorite 
from that subgenre. So look for that on Tuesday, July 19th. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff Shannon saying bye bye.